Welcome. My name is Neil Canavan. I am the scientific advisor for the Trout Group and coordinator of Trout Talks, where we talk about science with the scientists themselves. Today I will be speaking with Dr. Eric Pierce. Dr. Pierce serves as the director of the Inherited Retinal Disorders Service and the Berman Gund Laboratory for the study of retinal degenerations, as well as director of the Ocular Genomics Institute and Massachusetts Eye and Ear. All this in addition to his duties as an associate professor of ophthalmology at Harvard Medical School. Today, Dr. Pierce and I will be discussing the clinical programs using human retinal progenitor cell therapy, an approach pioneered by the biotech company Rineuron for the treatment of retinitis pigmentosa, an inherited disorder characterized by progressive vision loss. You're the principal investigator on the trials using this drug? That's correct. Now, first, I want to go into just a bit about your background. Uh, how did you come to uh, this work? Did you start from right from your residency of, of this is the sort of thing I want to do? Or? No, not at all. I wasn't sure which branch of medicine I wanted to go into medical school, but medical school is wonderful. It's, you get to be an apprentice in a number of different fields. So I tried on a bunch of different hats and liked the way the ophthalmology one fit. I think for two reasons. One, I do like using my hands, so the surgical, surgical piece initially attracted me. And second, there's a lot of research opportunity in ophthalmology, especially in retinal diseases. And I had just come from doing a PhD in biochemistry and really wanted to do academic medicine, so it seemed like a good fit. You asked about residency. When I was in residency, it was the same thing. I wasn't quite sure which subspecialty of ophthalmology I wanted to go into, but again, residency like medical school is a series of apprenticeships in different subspecialty areas of ophthalmology. And I fell in love with pediatric ophthalmology, actually. That's how I started that. How long have you been in business? I finished residency in 1994, so that's 22 years. And, you know, I used to cover ophthalmology, and I was sort of appalled by the lack of progress over the years. Are, uh, are, you know, perhaps since Lucentis, are we, we now turned to molecular corner, begin to understand what we're doing? Sure. So for my postdoc, I was part of the group that discovered the use of anti-VEGF agents for inhibiting retinal neovascularization. So that was a pretty exciting start. When I set up my own lab, I decided to focus on the genetics of inherited retinal disorders and had this dream of using the molecular information, the genetic causality of disease to inform therapies. And it's been very exciting to be living that dream as part of my career. Before we get into the specifics of, of the drug state that we're looking at, when I hear, hear you describe it that way, my first thought is, well, great, gene therapy. But that's not what you're doing. Why not go in that direction? So that's actually what I spend most of my time doing. In, my, in the Ocular Genomics Institute that I run at Harvard and Mass Ear, we investigate the genetic causality of inherited retinal disorders and use that information to understand disease pathogenesis and try to develop gene and genetic therapies for disease. As part of that, I also run the Inherited Retinal Disorder Service at Mass Ear, on which we are doing clinical trials of gene therapies. But gene therapies can only work if there are enough residual cells present in the retina to treat. And we see a whole population of patients in whom the target photoreceptor cells and retinal pigment epithelial cells have already died. So there's nothing to take up the gene? There's nothing to take up the gene. So we, would, we want to be able to treat all of our patients, and we've always hoped that regenerative medicine, stem cell-based therapies, would have a role in 
one of the phases of therapies we could offer to patients. So when the neuron approached us about helping with this study, we were compelled by the need and the solid preclinical data to participate. And, and I think that's one of the advantages of working at an institution like Mass Engineering and Harvard. Although we have our own little Ocular Genomics Institute focused on genetics and gene therapies, down the hall, Mike Young and Demetrius Babas are running this Ocular Regenerative Medicine Institute, and they're trying to develop stem cell therapies. So while they're, you know, we're not doing that basic science or lab-based science, they are, but we can collaborate with them to help translate their work. So talk to me about that, uh, the unmet need. Uh, if I'm a kid today and I uh, am identified as one of these retina pigmentosa patients, what's standard of care? Standard of care right now is if you have typical retinitis pigmentosa, which you mentioned, the standard of care would be to provide nutritional supplements, which have been shown. Vitamin in A. Vitamin A, mm -hmm. lutein, DHA or fish in the diet, which as a combination have been shown to decrease the rate of vision loss in typical patients with retinitis pigmentosa. Beyond that, we would offer genetic testing in the hope that we would understand disease prognosis better and potentially identify gene therapy potential. Um, we're very excited about the potential gene therapy to treat these disorders. There are multiple ongoing clinical trials of gene therapies. But at the moment, we don't have any to offer any of our patients. So we'd be trying to prepare for the eventual use of gene therapy for a child. How long have you been working with uh, Renoron? I guess it's been a couple of years now, first getting ready for the study and then starting the study this year. Okay. Do you recall uh, the <laughs> fire in the background? Do you recall the, was there a, a moment or a, like a data set where you, that convinced you said, yeah, I want to work with this, this project? No, it wasn't any one single data set. What I think ultimately compelled me was the combination of data from multiple groups, Mike Young's and others, showing that retinal progenitor cells of the right developmental stage could integrate into host retinas following transplantation. And I think it's more that that data comes from multiple groups using multiple approaches that made me feel like it's a robust effect. Now, uh, these cells are injected. They're injected behind the retina or within the retina? Explain that to me. The cells are injected under the retina. Mm -hmm. So the retina lives next to the retinal pigment epithelium, the outer layer of retinal cells which are pigmented. And it's really the interaction of the retinal pigment epithelium and the light-sensitive cells of the neural retina that enable vision. Even though they're closely interacting, there's a potential space between those two cell layers. And that's where we deliver the retinal progenitor cells for this trial. This sounds like a very specialized technique. It is. Yeah. So uh, if, if one assumes in a rollout, how do you handle that? Are there only specialty centers that would have to do it? or? It's a specialized technique, but it combines many surgical techniques that current vitro-retinal surgeons use all the time, so that a capable vitro-retinal surgeon, I think, could learn this technique relatively easily. Evidence to support that is that there are now multiple ongoing trials of gene therapy using the same approach mm. that are being done at multiple centers, and the injection technique has been adopted readily in those centers. I see, I see. Now, it goes to the... Uh, a single injection, uh, we're talking thousands of cells, millions of cells? 
So that's one of the things we're trying to determine in this initial phase one 2A study, which is a dose escalation study. We're trying to figure out what's an appropriate dose to use going forward. Animal data suggests somewhere between hundreds of thousands of cells and a few million cells will be the right number. And we'd like to titrate that in the current trial and come to a effective but safe dose of cells. Now, I, this might seem like a silly question. How do you know if a rat is seeing better? So it turns out there are lots of ways to measure vision in rodents as well as other animals. To me, the most compelling examples or metrics of improved rat vision are behavior. Oh. So, for example, you can measure a rat's vision by their ability to track a rotating drum in which vertical bars of dark and white are projected. The size of the bars creates a, an, a, essentially a grading acuity measurement. And we all have, rodents as well as people, the natural tendency to track moving objects, yeah. this optico, optokinetic response. So you can observe a rat's optokinetic response and determine if they can see larger or smaller grading bars and tell if they can see better. And with your human patients, how are, we, how are we measuring efficacy? Obviously, you can ask, you know, can you see better? But how are we measuring that? I think we're going to need multiple measurements in this case because we're not completely sure how much vision is going to be restored or which type of vision. So we're going to measure across the spectrum of outcome or of endpoints, visual acuity, visual field, ability to see under conditions of dim illumination, as well as structural outcome. And we can use optical coherence tomography to observe the structure of the retina non-invasively now. And the, the technique has got very high resolution. That's how we can tell if patients have residual photoreceptor or RPE cells or not. We can take images before stem cell transplantation and afterwards and see if there's any change in retinal structure. Uh, your comparator is a sham injection? The comparator in an individual subject is pre-injection. OK, all right. Uh, is there, uh, this is a very different sort of uh, medicine, if you will. Is there any consideration of placebo effect? In the current study, there is not, because it's a phase one study, it's primarily a safety study. If things are successful and this moves on to, say, a pivotal phase three study, there will have to be some consideration given to a control arm. I think it would be difficult to do a complete sham surgery because of the risks involved with surgery, but you could certainly prepare a subject for surgery and not enter the eye with a subretinal injection. So with the, it is hoped, with the single injection, you'll you get the efficacy you're, you're looking for. If not, is there a potential to retreat? So I think there could be. And again, this is going to be something we'll have to determine empirically. At first, I think, you know, we're starting with a single injection focused on the center of the retina in this study, but it, I think it's possible to imagine doing multiple injections in one treatment session to cover more area of the retina going forward. And secondly, in terms of retreatment, I think there's the possibility to do that, mainly because the subretinal space is an immune privileged area, meaning we don't, we're not seeing immune response so far to treatments provided in that space, such as gene therapies. If that holds up for stem cell therapy, that could provide the opportunity to go back and retreat. But like any tissue, there are a limited number of times 
you can surgically manipulate the retina. So I think, in, to me, ideally, we would provide treatment in one setting rather than having to plan on going back for multiple treatments. Uh, I asked this of, of um, Dr. Young. How do you know that the cells will stay where you put them? I worry more about how do we know that the cells survive where we put them. Yeah. In terms of staying where we put them, I think it would be difficult to imagine a route by which cells could migrate outside the subretinal space or migrate outside the eye. I don't believe there's been any evidence of that in animal studies where fluorescently labeled cells have been provided to animals, mm. although I would have to check the literature to verify that. So I don't think there's any evidence from preclinical studies that cells migrate outside the eye. And I, again, I think just based on my understanding of anatomy of, of the eye and the biology in that set, in that space, I don't think that's going to happen. As I said, I think a bigger challenge is how do we tell if the cells take up residence in the retina and provide function? And for how long, yeah. And for how long. What is the lifespan of a typical uh, retinal cell that's healthy? So. We're using the retinal cells we were born with. These are part of our oh, central really? nervous system, and they're not reproducing. So they are permanent members of our central nervous system. So these cells you're injecting are not dividing? No, they're not. I see. Now, as far as the indication is concerned, uh, again, a prior talk with Dr. Young, this is one of the reasons that uh, genetic manip manipulations may not be effective, is you have to have healthy cells to take up the gene. Uh, how late do you think we could treat a patient with this product and still expect to see an improvement? It's also a very important question I think these clinical studies are going to have to answer. Because we're injecting neural retinal progenitor cells, to me, the ideal setting in which those cells could function would be a retina where the retinal pigment epithelium is still largely intact, which means late but not end-stage disease. How quickly are these patients identified? We follow several thousand families with inherited retinal disorders at Mount Sinai, so we see patients with advanced stage disease all the time. Do you see patients who have no symptoms yet? Yes, we do. Usually in families in which there's a family history of inherited retinal disease and parents are curious about the status of their children. And in such a case, can you envision prophylactic treatment? I mean, Yes, although in that setting, as I indicated earlier, if an individual has healthy retinal cells present, my first thought would be gene therapy would be the ideal to pick that up. treatment mm -hmm. because you could hopefully repair or fix the subject's endogenous or their own cells. But we're really in the early days of using both gene and stem cell therapies, so I think we're going to have to, through these clinical trials, through these experiments, figure out what the right use of these different modalities are, what the right uses of these modalities are. And just the next couple of questions uh, to drive home uh, the significant unmet need. You, you see these patients, yep. and you've helped to recruit these trials. How difficult or easy it is to uh, fill out one of these trials with patients? We're in the early stages of this. We're a neuron-sponsored phase one study, but we've had no trouble recruiting subjects. When we first started, when that wasn't even advertising, when the trial was first listed on clinicaltrials.gov, we got over 100 inquiries about potential participation.
there are a lot of subjects with advanced disease who are facing increasing vision loss, who are certainly curious to learn about the study, and I think most of them would be eager to participate in the study. And then finally, I know uh, from covering this space before, it's, it's, it's oddly very different from any other malady. People will, will trade a year of life for better eyesight. Uh, what's a meaningful improvement to your patients as they speak to you? The doc, this is what I want. You know, all of them would like to have their perfect normal vision restored. Sure. So one of the challenges in recruiting subjects for these and other studies is managing expectations. Okay. When we explain that that kind of vision restoration is unlikely, they all say, that's fine. I understand that. I would just like to be able to see better. I would like to be able to read again or see my grandchildren's or my spouse's face again. Or, in some cases, just navigate independently and not be so dependent on other people for getting around. So, again, most of the subjects we've spoken with in this and in other clinical trials get the idea that, or I think are excited about the idea of having the potential for some restoration of vision, even if it's not complete restoration. And to, to the point of how eager your, parent, your patients are, I would assume they'd be extremely compliant. Is there any follow-up uh, treatment required? So there's, following the surgery to deliver the human retinal progenitor cells, there's the typical post-operative follow-up care that's needed, really to manage the post-operative care of the eye itself, not, not specifically related to the study intervention. Once the eye's healed from the subretinal injection and the post-operative medications are stopped, we're not planning to use any medications for these patients, but we're going to have to monitor them and see if that's going to be an effective approach or not. Are there any side effects? So that's what we're asking. Yeah, we don't know. In this first clinical trial, we have consciously chosen, for example, not to use immunosuppression mm -hmm. in the patients receiving these stem cell transplants because the retina is this, has this immune privilege. We're going to have to see if the subjects manage with that and don't get an inflammatory or rejection response, or if they do. And then finally, uh, when can we expect to see um, so the readouts from these trials? The goal of the trial is to follow all the treated subjects for a year. So we're hoping to complete enrollment in the study in the next nine to 10 months. So in the next 18 to 24 months, I hope we can have a, a study readout. Dr. Pierce, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for your questions.